Section 31 of The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Zames Curran. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 1. Edited by Francis Wright Wheeler. Astronomy. Chapter 21. The Stars, the Constellations, Methods of Noting the Stars. The ancients assumed that the celestial sphere of the heavens was a reality, and even considered it a solid sphere of crystal, on which they observed and marked the positions of the various stars, just as today the astronomer assumes for the same purpose an ideal celestial sphere of which the observer is the center, and in which declination corresponds with the latitude on the earth and the right ascension with longitude. They appreciated that although the stars moved across the sky, and apparently with different rates of motion, yet the distances between any two remained unchanged. For this reason, they imagined that the stars were fixed on the celestial sphere. The motion of some of the stars about a center or pole, which coincided with the pole star, was observed, and the two poles in the heavens were early assumed. But the most important observation of the ancients was the relative position of the sun and the stars. The succession of such observations early showed that the stars were gradually changing their position with respect to the sun, or that the sun was changing its position with respect to the stars. Thus the stars obviously varied in position and magnitude, yet in ancient times little was conceived as to their nature or possible origin. There was, of course, the fundamental distinction between the planets or moving bodies and the idea of the fixity of the stars, which was early established and persisted for many centuries, even though Giordano Bruno, died 1600, vaguely suggested that the suns of space move. In 1718, Halley had announced a shifting in the sky of Sirius, Aldebaran, Betelgeuse, and Arcturus since the time of Ptolemy's catalogue, and similar conclusions were reached by various other astronomers. But it was only in 1838 when Bessel, with the heliometer, was able to detect a motion of the star 61 Cygni, that it was clearly and conclusively demonstrated that the stars move through space as well as other bodies in the universe. The stars were supposed by the ancients to be situated on the celestial sphere at a distance greater, it is true, than the planets. Yet, as they were observed year after year in essentially the same position, they were held as fixed and immovable and a bodily rotation of the celestial sphere itself was assumed. Just as the ancient mind had given to the planets the names of gods and goddesses, so the wise men of antiquity assigned to the stars similar names or those of animals, the natural result of their vivid imagination. This they did also with groups of stars, with even greater play of the imagination. The idea of grouping the stars into constellations dates from the earliest times. In fact, 
the names long ago given to many have persisted until today, though it must be confessed that they have often proved a cause of embarrassment to the student of astronomy. The modern mind finds it difficult to group in imagination a series of bright points of light in the shape of some mythological hero, bear, dog, serpent, or other animal. In most cases, the choice had been made in a most arbitrary manner, and Sir John Herschel has truly remarked, the constellations seem to have been purposely named and delineated to cause as much confusion and inconvenience as possible. Innumerable snakes twine through the long and contorted areas of the heavens where no memory can follow them. Bears, lions, and fishes, large and small, confuse all nomenclature. End quote. The names of the constellations as we know them are doubtless of Greek origin, borrowed from the Chaldean and Egyptian astronomy. For the most part, the names are Greek. The most important are those through which the ancients believed that the sun passed in its annual circuit of the celestial sphere, or, in other words, those through which the ecliptic passes. For thousands of years, these constellations have been used to identify the position of the sun, especially as the sun, moon, and five planets were always to be found within a region of the sky, extending about eight degrees on each side of the ecliptic. To this strip of the celestial sphere, the term zodiac was given. For with one exception, all of the constellations it contained were named after living things. It was divided into twelve equal parts, forming the familiar signs of the zodiac, through one of which the sun passes every month. These signs were made up of a number of stars grouped into constellations. Their names may still be seen, but with unimportant changes, in the modern almanac, just as they figured in early Greek days. The names as given in Latin are Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, Scorpio, Sagittarius, Capricornus, Aquarius, and Pisces. Just how the stars were originally grouped to form the constellations by the ancients, history does not record. In an article in the Scientific American, it is stated that, quote, the first reliable information regarding the Greek sky is obtained from Exodus of Sinidus, an astronomer who lived about 370 BC. His work furnished Autarus, who lived a hundred years later, with material for his great astronomical poem, in great numbers, says Arcturus. And in various courses, the stars incessantly move around the motionless sky. The axle stands immobile. In the midst, the earth is suspended in equilibrium, while the heavens swing around it. The poles bound the axle on both sides. These are encircled by the bears that revolve around back to back, separated by the dragon's manifold coils. Eratosthenes about 170 BC, enumerates these constellations and not only tells the mythological tales, but indicates the position and the numbers of the stars in every figure, differing from Octaurus only in a few particulars. Ptolemy gave 48 constellations. The figures were the same as the old constellations of Octaurus, with a few additions. The stars, however, were marked in their proper places and defined as to longitude, latitude, and magnitude. After Ptolemy, a long period ensued during which the astronomical charts were unchanged. It is to the Arabs in the 8th century 
that the next advances do. The caliphs of this period, among them were Aran al-Rashad of Arabian Nights fame, were friends to science, and gathered around them men of learning, such as the famous astronomer Olog Bek Ferengi el-Batan and Abdurrahman Sufar. To a great extent, they were satisfied with Ptolemy's work, and although they retained a great many of the Greek star names, they added a number derived by tradition from the ancient Arab names. Abdelrahman Sufi wrote a detailed and exhaustive account of the Greek constellations, carefully following Ptolemy, and at the same time he treated of the ancient Arabian heavens. So strong was their objection to the personal element that when the Greek zodiac was incorporated by the Arabian astronomers, they indicated the names of the objects carried by the characters instead of the characters themselves. Thus Virgo was called the ears on account of the wheat she held in her hand. Sagittarius was not the archer, but the bow, and Aquarius not the water-bearer, but the well-bucket. When the great mixture of the Arabian folklore was combined with the Greek sky, many of the star names were retained, but occasionally the Greek names were changed. For example, the beautiful red Antares in Scorpio was approximately called the Scorpion's Heart. In 1433, made at his observatory in Samarkand the most correct catalogue of the stars up to that period. The famous astronomical tables compiled under Alfonso X of Castile date from 1252, and next in importance was the great catalogue of Tycho Brahe, 1546 to 1601. The southern hemisphere, which was uncharted by the ancients, is of far less interest than the northern, partly because the changes have been frequent and unimportant, and partly because the only constellation visible to us is the dove, introduced early in the 16th century. In the old books, it is called the Columbia Nova because it is near the ship, represented sometimes at that period as Noah's Ark. The regions around the ship and the North Pole have been subject to the most frequent changes since the 17th century. The most familiar constellation is the Great Bear known to Americans as the Dipper. Three stars form the tail of the animal, and four others part of his body. To the more prosaic American mind, the analogy of the Dipper seems far more apt than that of a bear. In Cassiopeia, which is across the pole from the Dipper, the brighter stars form the chair in which the lady is seated. In many cases, the position of a figure can be reproduced with a fair degree of certainty, although it is hard to realize how the names were originally given. Most of the constellations familiar by observation or legend are those of the northern sky, because until modern times there were no recorded observations of the southern sky. Two of the southern constellations, however, are noteworthy, one of which is the centaur, containing two first-magnitude stars, Alpha and Beta Centauri, the first of which, as we shall see, is notable as being the nearest of all the stars to our Earth, while the second constellation is the famous Southern Cross, or Cruz, having also a first magnitude star, Alpha Crucis. Some 5,000 years ago, the Southern Cross rose above the English horizon and was just visible at the latitude of London. But through the centuries, 
it has had a southerly motion and has not been seen for many years, even in the south of Europe. Perhaps the chambers of the south in the book of Job, chapter 9, 9, may have been this constellation, for the southern cross may have been a feature in the sky of Palestine when this book was written. The designation of individual stars probably antedated the idea of constellations. This we may infer from the allusion to the star Octorus in Job, chapter 9, verse 9. The two stars, Castor and Pollux, date from classic antiquity. The names of most individual stars now used are of Arabic origin, which fact accounts for the number of names not Greek or Latin. Thus, Aldebaran is a corruption of Al-de-Baron, the follower. The modern system of naming stars, however, consists in identifying them with the constellation and then in giving them a separate designation by adding a letter of the Greek alphabet. Thus, the brightest star of a constellation is called Alpha, the next Beta, etc. This rule, which was devised by Bayer for his Uranometria, or star catalogue, published in 1601, has not been followed in all cases. When the number of stars was such as to exhaust the Greek alphabet, the Roman was employed, and in some cases, italics. Flamsted, the first astronomer royal of England, in his catalogue of stars made from the observations at Greenwich, 1666 through 1715, introduced a system of numbering the stars. In modern star catalogues, both the Bayer letter and the Flamsteed number are often found. End of section 31.